Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between Earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. This is Perry Marshall. I have a very special guest today. I have the author of The Cheating Cell by Athena Actippus. And uh, the subtitle is How Evolution Helps Us Understand and Treat Cancer. There are not a lot of cancer evolution books and certainly very few that are comprehensible to mere mortals, but this is one of them, one of the very few. And so Athena is, I would describe as one of the edgier professors I know. She has a podcast called Zombified, which takes zombies to entirely new dimensions. I believe, is it true that the zombie like the zombie Hilbert space adds like another dimension every time you do another podcast is like, and now we're up to 36, you know, there dimensions. are so many different kinds of zombies and ways of being zombified. And yeah, we just keep discovering more. So, <laughs> well, I, I think most of the world is sleepwalking and we need to do something about it. So Athena, delighted to have you here. Oh, and she's a professor of psychology at ASU, Arizona State University. And I was there three and a half years ago giving a, doing my first prize announcement. I was very impressed with ASU. So. Yeah, ASU is a pretty cool place. I mean, it's the only place really where someone as interdisciplinary as me can be, you know, doing so many different kinds of things, right? Because I'm in a psychology department, but really I work on cooperation and conflict and I work on cancer and zombies. So yeah, it's a, it's the only university I could really imagine doing all of those things and, and having it be mostly okay. (laughs) And that's why I like the place because interdisciplinary is the word. It's one of my, one of my favorite words. And so, well, so let's start with this. Most people who would write a book about cancer are not psychologists, but you're a psychologist And so that's, I mean, I have a PhD in psychology and I'm in a psychology department, but like, you know, if I had to use one word to describe myself, it wouldn't be psychologist. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I kind of think of myself as a cooperation theorist and, uh, you know, interdisciplinary scholar of cooperation. And I happen to be in a psychology department because honestly, because that's what my PhD is in, even though you know, my dissertation was on computational models of the evolution of cooperation. You know, the systems that are set up in the world are still pretty interdisciplinary. So one kind of still has to go through like one particular set of doors down a particular pathway to become a professor. So yeah, I just wanted to throw that out there that it's like, yeah, I'm in a psychology department with a PhD in psychology, but I really think of myself as a fundamentally interdisciplinary scholar. And your department head puts up with it. Yeah, amazingly. I mean, and not just with that, but with me in general. So it's uh, pretty impressive. <laughs> well, and the, and the zombified podcast has cussing. So that's not a really typical university thing. So yeah. Speaking of which, should I like not swear for this? 
we don't typically do it. <laughs> All right, I'll try to hold myself I'm back. You can always bleep me out if you need to. <laughs> I know, I know. I've I've found language on a few other people's podcasts from time to time. <laughs> I was feeling especially passionate about something. So, so, so I have three questions just right out of the gate. Number one, I would explore like three ways of looking at cancer and evolution. Number one, cells don't appear to be cheaters. They really are cheating. Number two, tumors aren't accidentally evolving. They're evolving on purpose. Number three, evolution isn't one aspect of cancer. It's the defining characteristic of cancer. Hmm. I don't know if you agree with any of that, but I thought, well, especially since you're a psychology professor, no question you've thought about these questions. So, Well, I'll start with the easy one, the last one. Okay. So... Yeah, cancer is fundamentally disease of somatic evolution. You know, it it happens because cells within our body are differentially surviving and dividing and, you know, using resources, co-opting the, you know, effort of other cells and that process, you know, can lead to an evolutionary leg up for some cells over others. And so I think yes, cancer fun- is fundamentally disease of somatic evolution. There are also potentially other diseases of somatic evolution though, but I think cancer is kind of the sort of runaway somatic evolution disease. So yeah, so that one's easy. The first one, the cheating, like they don't appear to be cheating. They actually are cheating. Yes. Cheating is not a metaphor for what is happening in cancer. I guess it depends though how you define cheating. Like if you say, okay, well, cheating is something where humans intentionally take advantage of each other. And that's how you define cheating, then, well, yeah, then it's going to be a metaphor. But if you take an approach to cheating that is sort of more kind of based in like fundamental principles of how organisms interact with each other and evolve, like I like to define cheating as a situation where one individual is breaking either implicit or explicit rules that are there and that they gain a fitness benefit from it. So you don't need any intention for that kind of cheating. It just arises when you have, you know, systems where there's a bunch of benefits being generated and it's possible for some individuals to exploit that or take advantage of that. Okay. Yeah. All right. And then the second one, can you say the second one again? So I can. One was, I think this gets into your use of the word intentional. So tumors aren't accidentally evolving. They're evolving on purpose. Well, yeah. So what do we mean by on purpose then? I mean, if it's like, okay, evolution is a process that generates what appears to be purposeful design, then you could say that, you know, what's happening in a tumor is sort of, you know, it results in adaptations at the cell level that have purpose in the sense that they are advancing the evolutionary interests of those entities, but the on purpose doesn't have to have any intention behind it. So that's what I would say to that. Number two is, you know, it's an easy cognitive shortcut to think in adaptationist terms, which is kind of what that is, right. Saying like, oh, well, you know, this is evolving to do this, or this is the purpose of this. But when it comes down to it, that's really just kind of a heuristic or rule of thumb for talking about what's a really complex process of, you know, variation and selection and, you know, heritability leading to natural selection for things that then look like they evolved to do something specific. Well, so I think this gets us to 
there's a whole little field called basal cognition, which mm -hmm. is what intelligence-like characteristics do organisms that don't have nervous systems have? So like I have a slime mold, I have bacteria growing in my coffee cup because I didn't dump it out the other day. And then if I do certain things to those bacteria, they will respond, they'll change their genes, they'll, they'll do all these things. And so I've got a whole pile of them growing right back there. I got my kombucha. So that's, uh, you know, that's you your kombucha. Yeah. So, you know, it's a, a cooperative system. It's got yeast and bacteria in there, many different species, and they're somehow working together to turn, you know, just regular old sweet tea into a, you know, delicious effervescent beverage that I like to consume in the afternoon. So it's a kind of amazing example of you know, a system where you actually have a, a lot of cooperation going on um, because the biofilm is getting created by the bacteria, but the yeast are kind of cleaving the sugar so that the bacteria can use them. So there's sort of division of labor going on and this, the biofilm kind of protects the whole thing from getting invaded by other microbes that might use up the sugars. So it's a pretty cool cooperative system where, yeah, there's a lot of uh, information that's uh, being passed back and forth to make it function well, just like, I mean, all the cells in our bodies are, you know, using so much information from within the cell, from the neighboring cells, from the rest of the body. You know, we kind of think, well, most of the information processing is going on here in our heads, but really, you know, the, it's all of this distributed information processing happening all the time in, you know, every one of the cells of our body. It's just our, you know, our brains are the thing that we're most uh, aware of as doing computation. <laughs> Uh, my son, who's 22, had a kombucha accident two weeks ago. Ooh, what does that mean? <laughs> he popped a lid off of one of his kombucha bottles, and there was way too much pressure in there, and it smacked him in the eye. <gasps> oh, no. And the only thing he could see out of that eye was red the next instant, and my wife rushed him to the emergency room and he escaped with only the need for a little bit of laser surgery on his retina. And he's wow. Wow. All right. Well, that's an issue with, you know, any kind of uh, effervescent beverage that you might brew at home. So that should be a lesson to, to everyone who brews anything. So <laughs> Either you are lucky man. You, oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. And don't point the bottle at your face. I mean, that's really the bottom line. So, <laughs> so yeah. So yeah, those little critters, they can, um, I guess they're what they were turning sugar into carbon dioxide. Is that what's going on? Yeah. They're producing carbon dioxide and alcohol. And I mean, in the case of kombucha, a lot of acid as well. So, well, I like kombucha and, and yes, now from now on, he is very careful. Well, okay. So, um, how did you end up like doing a whole book about cancer? Okay, it's one thing to be interested and dilly-dally in 800 different things. It's another thing, like writing a book like this is a bitch, okay? So <laughs> you have to be seriously interested. What's the backstory? Of the book? How did the book come about? Like, how did you, what, what hooked you into this? 
the honest answer is that, you know, I have been kind of obsessed with these questions about the evolution of cooperation and, you know, what makes cooperation stable? You know, when does cheating take over? When does it not? You know, really, since I kind of became aware of myself as a human being who could like be responsible for my own education. So like kind of late in high school, I started just reading like crazy. I was really drawn to, you know, evolution and behavior. And then, you know, all the stuff about like, you know, the research that Axelrod and Hamilton did, you know, with evolution of cooperation and all of that. So I was just enamored with the whole field of evolution and behavior, especially questions about cooperation that were very, very general spanning, you know, across all different systems. And I went through undergrad and grad school focusing on that. And then when I got to my postdoc, which I did at the University of Arizona with John Pepper, I went to work with him because we had very similar interests in sort of assortment and cooperation and these sort of movement dynamics and how they affect the evolution of cooperation. But he was also working on evolution in cancer at that time. And so when I went and, you know, we started just kind of having conversations about evolutionary approach to cancer, I started realizing, well, you know, this is much bigger than just, you know, natural selection or drift or whatever. This is, you know, all of these different sub theories in evolution and ecology, they should all be applying to cancer. So, you know, all this stuff about the evolution of cooperation that should apply all this about life history theory that should apply all this stuff about dispersal theory that should apply. So it was like, Whoa, like this whole world opened up of, you know, all of these theoretical frameworks that should apply to understanding cancer evolution. And once that window was opened up for me, it was like, I couldn't look away at that point. I just, I had to explore all of that. And that's really kind of what got me hooked to evolution and cancer. And then the fact that, you know, there was this very clear mapping between the sort of general problems of how does cooperation evolve and the, you know, issues of how does multicellularity evolve without succumbing to cancer. It was like, you know, to me, like, okay, this is a place where, you know, can look at a whole other, you know, dimension of the evolution of cooperation that actually has a lot of practical applications as well. Right. Obviously, because cancer is one of those diseases that's just been, you know, almost intractable. I mean, yes, there's been progress made, but a lot of problems remain, you know, I mean, there's so much that we don't still know about cancer. So that's kind of the backstory of like how I got hooked on evolution and cancer and especially sort of cooperation theory approach to it. So it's exhibit A of testing any cooperation model that you could ever imagine. B, it's a Petri dish for every single question in evolution and all the different mechanisms of which there are very, very many. And then the whole idea of even multicellularity, you know, the fact that, well, Michael Levin likes to say, the question is, isn't why do we have cancer? The question is, why isn't everything cancer? Why, yeah. why aren't all the cells in the world just all doing their little um, laissez-faire economics of like whatever, wherever the next food is? Yeah. Right? And so you have these three things all at once. Yeah. Plus all of the, I mean, the fact that it's a really important issue for human health and well-being. 
So yeah. all do, of those layer up and then make it something I can't not work on. <laughs> do you also have an aunt Linda or an uncle Rick who died of cancer, who even pushed like, is there a story like that that pushed you even more into it or. So my story about sort of how cancer touched my family is not really the traditional one that you would, that you would think about. So I lost my mom when I was 18 and my brother and I interpreted it as suicide because she left a note that, you know, suggested that, you know, she had decided that, you know, her, she, it's hard for me to talk about. So I'll, I'll jump over some of it, but long story short, when I was working on my book, one of my friends and colleagues who was reading some of the book for me and helping me with some editing, she asked, you know, well, what's your personal connection to cancer. And I was like, well, you know, I, I don't really, I don't think I really have, you know, that much of a personal connection to cancer, but you know, there were, was this thing on the autopsy report of, for my mom, you know, when she committed suicide, that there was thyroid, there was a, a tumor in her thyroid. And I had thought that she just happened to have that and didn't know it. And it was incidental, but it turns out she had had late stage cancer and didn't tell me or my brother. And I learned from her close friend, 18 years after the fact that that was the reason that she took her life. And he didn't even know that my brother and I didn't know that. Oh, wow. Yeah. My word. Yeah. Yeah. So she didn't talk about it at all and didn't even write anything about it in her note. Well, you're talking about it. Yeah. That's, that's a curveball. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, it, it really, you know, it, it hits home just like how the taboos around cancer and the fact that like, you know, there at least, you know, 20 years ago when that was, you know, people wouldn't talk about it and, you know, even more so before that. And, you know, there's cultural differences in this as well. Right. In some places, people just don't talk about cancer that can kind of feed this fear about it. Right. It's like, if you don't talk about it, it's scary. And, you know, it's scary because you don't have a way of talking about it. And then, you know, it, it, the, that taboo and the fear and, you know, anxiety around it sometimes can, you know, be worse than the disease itself. So that's something that I think we need to look at how to, how to change that as a society. And, and, you know, not everybody who has cancer is, is going to want to talk about it and that should be fine, but, you know, for it to be something that people don't feel afraid to talk about or afraid to ask about, or, you know, to really understand like, what is the nature of cancer, you know, that like knowing more just about what cancer is, I think can take away some of that fear and anxiety and, you know, the, the taboos around it, because, you know, it's a sort of a 
a human thing that when things are scary and all that, we kind of, you know, avoid them. And if they're unknown, we're more likely to have taboos around them. So kind of, how can we shift that, you know? Well, you know, it's, it kind of reminds me of how back in my, my wife's dad is 90 and he's adopted. And back when he was a kid, you didn't talk about being adopted like this. Mm. It was very similar, like, okay, well, complex, heavy issues. So we're just not going to discuss it. Or like, I remember Betty Ford had breast cancer and I don't think talking about breast cancer was considered polite before then, but then it kind of broke the ice. Mm-hmm. Like, well, now we talk about that. It's like no big mm-hmm. deal. So, wow. Okay. And when this happened to your mom, were you already on to cancer as a topic? Um, no, so I was I was 18. I was in college and you know really working on evolution of cooperation, evolution and behavior as part of my undergrad. So at Reed you get to do a thesis, so I was, you know, well, and even before I did my thesis I was already doing computational modeling just cuz I was really into it. <laughs> I taught myself how to do agent-based modeling and started working on the the walkaway model when I was still an undergrad. So that's kind of where I was at that point in my life. So why don't you give us uh, a little sketch of what does a person who models compute, sorry, cooperation do? And how does a very simple assumption about a cooperative model produce like a radically, like Hmm. help us understand, like I changed this one little parameter and then my cooperation over the millions of, of mm-hmm. instances completely changes. Can you just uh, walk us through whatever part of that that you think would be helpful? Yeah, well, one of the reasons I love agent-based modeling is because it's a way of doing computational modeling where you basically put in, you know, here are the decision rules that I think the, you know, agents are, are using or that I want to, you know, test what happens if, I have agents using these and this is what the environment is like, right? And, and here's how the agents interact with each other. Here's how they interact with their environment. You know, here's how they move or don't. Here's how they, you know, invest in the shared environment or they don't, or, you know, you could have just like a similar, simple prisoner's dilemma, you know, where they're choosing to cooperate or not. And then, you know, you can program these simple rules. So like with the walkaway model, um, I put in, cooperators and defectors and tit for tat agents, Pavlov agents, and these walkaway agents and the walkaway agents, they, you know, would stay if their partner was cooperating and leave if their partner defected, but they would always cooperate. Actually also I made walkaway defectors. So they were like, you know, I'm always going to defect, but I'm only going to stay with other cooperators. So, you know, they didn't have that much luck, um, but (laughs) they were giving it a try, you know, just seeing what they could get away with. So then, you know, you set up these different strategies, you put them in the world and you push go and they, you know, they move around and bump into each other and interact with each other. And, you know, I, I programmed them to, you know, so that if they got a certain level of resources, then they would, you know, reproduce and they could have some chance of mutating into a different strategy. So you can basically put, you know, this whole simulated world 
into this program where you have all these strategies and you can actually have them evolve, have the strategies interacting with each other. And it's just a really, a really powerful tool for sort of, you know, seeing what kinds of outcomes you're going to get in ways that, you know, you couldn't predict if you were just sort of thinking about it in your head. And once you start getting into, you know, having agents that are fairly heterogeneous that are interacting with their environments in more complex ways, agent-based modeling becomes, I think, particularly important because it's really hard to put all of those kinds of factors into an analytical model where you're just sort of writing mathematical equations to figure out what's going to happen. If you have that heterogeneity, then agent-based models are great. And one of my favorite examples of how, you know, what you can do with agent-based modeling is with a group-wise walkaway model. So in this model, agents are, they, they move around and they, they can form groups and then they basically play public goods games um, within those groups. And if the level of cooperation drops below a certain point, then agents will leave And, you know, depending on what you set the threshold to, or if you let the threshold sort of evolve for, you know, where they, like when they decide to leave or not over a really broad range of parameters, you get this really awesome metapopulation structure. And metapopulation is like groups of groups, right? So what happens is, you know, you'll have groups of cooperators and the more cooperators that are in the group, the faster that group is growing. And the more defectors are in a group, the more likely, well, the slower that group grows and the more quickly it breaks up. So you have this differential stability, the groups with more cooperators, they're more stable, they're more long lasting, they grow faster, the groups with more defectors, the opposite. And then you have this sort of churn that happens where yes, any individual group eventually ends up getting taken over by defectors and breaking up because of that. But you have in the whole population, the cooperative groups are growing faster and ending up actually having little groups form on the edges of them as they're breaking up, where then, you know, just because of sampling error, some of them are more cooperative than others. And it's this dynamic process where, yeah, if you looked at any one group, you'd be like, oh, defection is going to be what, you know, happens in the end. But if you look at the whole population, it's like Simpson's paradox where you have essentially, you know, within each group, defectors do better, but in the whole population, cooperators are doing better on average because they're more likely to be in groups with more cooperators. So it's this way that you can get assortment with just super simple individual rules to just stay if things are good and leave if there's too many defectors. So as a result of you spent hours and hours and hours running these models and, you know, you even left your computer running for three days and you came back to see what happened <laughs> and all of that. So, yeah. Back in the day when it took a long time to <laughs> collect data. So, so you've had this window into, again, you know, just tweaking one little rule or assumption or feedback loop. And then you get these totally different outcomes. So Tell me something that you know about cooperating groups that 99.5% of the people in the world don't know, would never think about, and you're like, <gasps> mm. So I would say the thing that is, to me, like the most profound, surprising, sort of hidden thing is that 
you can have uh, strategies that are selected because of the individual benefit that they provide, right? Like walk away, like don't stay with defectors. Pretty clear how that's an individual level benefit. But those individual level rules, when they aggregate up, can change the entire structure of the population in a way that changes the selection pressures so that it can favor cooperation. So so you don't actually need adaptations at the group level in order to have selection favoring cooperation at the group level if you have those individual rules leading to an emergent population structure that favors cooperation. Okay, that's probably worth slowing down the tape. <laughs> that sounds really, so let me, tell me if I got this right. You know, I got a tribe of people living in the desert somewhere. I got what, you know, they got their life. And then you've got people, they are just living it for themselves. They're partying, they're taking other people's stuff, right? And then you have are, we, are we talking about like post-apocalyptic times now? Yeah, yeah, we're all yeah. right. Awesome. Okay, we're we're after the zombie apocalypse. All right. It's a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> You're speaking my language now. <laughs> we're in Namibia, and there's these there's some tribes of people, and I think what I heard you saying was that you could have a person who's exhibiting selfish behavior, which is ultimately bad for everybody, but it was something like, but even if something, something. So, yeah. So it's not that the behavior is selfish in the sense that it's taking advantage of others. Um, but the whole idea of the walkaway strategy is basically to not allow yourself to be exploited, right? You leave if you're in a group that has too many defectors or you leave if your partner is defecting and that is individually beneficial because it's protecting the individual from that exploitation. But the fact that if you have lots of individuals that have this sort of, let's say, self-protective mechanism to leave if they're being exploited, then that can totally change the way that groups are structured over time in a way that can favor cooperation. Okay, so if I run the program forward a long way, their behavior will actually feed into a more cooperative outcome later on, which is to say that cooperation is an emergent property that cannot be reduced to individual actions on a, you know, in an immediate time scale. Is that that's part of it. And, you know, and it's also that the individual level behaviors by changing the population structure can change the selection pressures. So if you have basically any time you have a population where cooperators are more likely to interact with other cooperators than with defectors, then selection can favor cooperation. And the walkaway strategy is basically a really simple individual-based way 
to get that assortment. So, you know, in the whole population, then cooperators are more likely to interact with cooperators, but not because any hand of God is coming in there and pairing cooperators up with each other, but just because, you know, individuals are leaving when they're interacting with defectors. There's almost like a little bit of a parallel to like the Maxwell's demon idea. It's like, you know, like it's, it's information processing, you know, that is happening at this level of the individual interactions, but then it's changing the way the whole system functions. Okay. That very interesting. So there's something you said that kind of seems a little bit paradoxical and it's how do you model an agent? So like, agency, maybe there's limitations, but I guess I just want to hear your take on it. Agency, as philosophers typically understand it, is the ability for an individual to act on its environment. And my goldfish has agency, but my computer does not. Now, maybe you disagree with that, or maybe it depends on how you define agency, but my goldfish, like, you can't predict what's going to happen to it, but it's going to respond as best it can. And it's, it does not appear to be running on a rigid set of rules. It's very fluid. But my, like if I drop my computer down the stairs, it just breaks. It won't try to stop itself. Or So how do you model? What are the limitations of modeling an agent? Mm-hmm. You go anywhere you want with this. Maybe you disagree with my premise, but that's fine. So when it comes to kind of your definition of agency, does it have to do with like the flexibility or does it have to be mushy? Like, can you make a something agentic out of silicon? Well, I've never seen a way. And I think the, they've been trying to make, you know, Siri and Alexa are attempts to make an agent out of silicon. And in my opinion, they don't really work all that well. They're not even close to biology. There's something biology is doing differently. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, I think there's two different questions on the table. There's sort of one of just like, what is agency? And then there's the question of sort of the limitations of agent-based modeling. And maybe I'll take the second one first, and then we could come back to the first one if we want. So, I mean, in terms of like limitations of agent-based modeling, you know, there's a a level of sort of complexity of strategy that, you know, if you make agents that are overly complex, it actually becomes really hard to understand why you would get the results that you get. Mm -hmm. So really the best models I think are the ones that are simplest, but then of course they're not capturing all of these other things that in the real world we think probably will influence things. So there's sort of like this trade-off of you know, if you want to know, well, you know, what is the role of X, then you need to make a model that has X in it and as little as possible else in it. Now, all that being said, sometimes you do need to, you know, have a model where you are parameterizing it based on, you know, empirical data from the real world to enough of an extent that you can get quantitative output that makes sense. So, you know, we recently did a model of the evolution of concealed ovulation. And I mean, it literally took like a decade to, <laughs> to, to do this because it was, you know, finding all this data to parameterize the model. So it'd be like, you know, realistic in terms of human mating and reproduction and parental investment without being more complex than it needed to be. And, you know, even then there is a, a sort of big struggle with like, you know, how do you keep it 
pared down enough while having enough realism in it so that your conclusions are valid. And of course, the more complex it is, the more assumptions you have to make too, which then means the more caveats you have to put on your conclusions. So it's this sort of balancing act. And I think that's one of the one of the big challenges. Well, so then it would be fair to say, though, that if you make a simple model, like there's only five variables instead of 50, you still get these very complex interactions, but your conclusions about what the input was versus what the output was are much cleaner. Yes. Right. And you can have a, a, a much more certain conclusion about what it actually means. Mm-hmm. And, it's yeah. less, and it takes less time to, okay, right. Let me jump to um, near the end of the book, you talk about Bob Gattenby, and I know him just a little bit. Could you explain what he did and why it was such a different way of thinking compared to the typical oncologist? And yeah, I think that just seems like maybe one of the most important stories in your book. Yeah, well, I think, you know, Bob Gatenby is one of those people who kind of, you know, came into a, a field that had a very sort of traditional approach. And he really just brought these evolutionary concepts and has been challenging a lot of conventional thinking. And in the you know, doing research that I think is perhaps some of the most important research in terms of practical applications of the evolutionary approach to cancer. So to kind of, you know, put it in a nutshell, essentially what Bob Gatenby has done is proposed alternative approach to cancer treatment. One that is not focused on eradicating a tumor, but rather keeping tumor a stable size. And now this might sound like a crazy idea, right? Because don't you want to just get rid of the tumor? Well, yes, you want to get rid of the tumor, but the problem is that all of the strategies for trying to eliminate the tumor have as a side effect that they select for cells that are resistant, which means that if the tumor grows back, you can no longer treat it with the drug that you were using to treat it originally. So there is this sort of cost of the eradication approach, which is that you lose the ability to kind of have reins on the tumor. And, you know, you can switch drugs, right? And hope that the next drug will keep it, you know, gone for long enough. But at least when it comes to late stage cancer, really the problem, you know, at least in modern Western countries is the evolution of resistance. It's it's resistant cancers that ultimately kill people, not cancers that are drug sensitive. So in the big picture, in the long term, or even the medium term, the real enemy is the resistant cells. So if we can take an approach that keeps those resistant cells from taking over, then and maintains a population of sensitive cells, then you can keep kind of knocking the tumor back by using actually the same drug over and over and using it for less time often than you would use a traditional chemotherapy because you're not looking for the tumor to sort of completely disappear on imaging, but rather you're looking to sort of keep it a stable size where the tumor burden is not too much. So that's the basic idea is, you know, you maintain a small size, 
but you don't treat it to extinction. You just treat it to keep it that small size. If it starts to grow, you treat it until it goes back to that under control size. And part of the key to why this works is because for cells to be resistant to therapy, oftentimes that's costly. So for example, one of the common ways that cancer cells are resistant to therapy is through having pumps that basically take all the drug and pump it outside of the cell and, you know, into the environment that's, you know, shared by the cells that is really intensive in terms of energy. So what happens then is that when you remove the drug, those cells that have invested in these pumps actually have a disadvantage compared to the cells that don't have the pump. So the cells without the pumps do better. So it's, it's almost like a enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of situation where it's like, yeah, it would be nice to have the tumor totally gone, but those sensitive cells, they're the enemy of my enemy. And therefore, if we, you know, let them stick around, they can keep the enemy under control. You know, Bill Gates had a, a saying, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Right now, I think a really good example of this is you know, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs were definitely rivals, but Apple, you know, Microsoft still made Microsoft Word for Apple, right? Mm -hmm. And now Bob Gatenby's experiment, he had 11 men with prostate cancer and he said, okay, we're not going to try to kill the prostate cancer. We're just going to keep it at bay. We're just going to hold it. And then he would monitor like they would run some kind of scans and find out like exactly are they growing? Like what's really going on here? And they would tweak what they were doing just to try to keep it. And what the story in your book says is that after the trial was over, which was quite a long period, what, 27 months or something like that, one of them, the cancer got out of control and gone bad. 10 of the 11 they were just in a holding pattern indefinitely. Yeah. Yeah. Compared to the, you know, they had a, a group that they were following. It wasn't a, you know, controlled experiment, but they were following a cohort to, as, as sort of a control and all of the ones in the, you know, standard cohort, they all progressed within that time. So it's kind of breathtaking the uh, level of success. And there's, you know, also much lower cumulative doses of abiraterone as well. So, you know, there's a lot of potential benefits from this approach that is aimed at control rather than eradication. And, you know, in this clinical trial, I think was a really important step. And, you know, it was with, a, you know, advanced prostate cancer that, that was, you know, basically, you know, not treatable at that point, you know, like it was basically like, you know, doctors don't know what to do anymore. And so, you know, it was okay to do this trial. And, you know, according to Bob, last time I talked to him about this, they're continuing to treat these patients with adaptive therapy and they're still doing really well. So. So there's another part of that story that I thought was very interesting was the first experiment Bob paid for with his own money. I know. Well, talk to me about that. <laughs> I, I have to say when I learned that I, you know, my level of respect for Bob just, I mean, it was already at like a ceiling and it just like broke through the ceiling because, you know, like here's someone who's like, all right, you know, the, the current thinking 
is not at the level where they're going to fund this work, but he just knew that it was something that needed to be done and he made it happen. And I mean, it's unfortunate, right. That, <laughs> that he had to do that, but you know, I mean, he's not the first scientist who funded his own work. I, I mean, Darwin was like, you know, his backyard was where he was doing tons of his experiments, you know, funded by his money. Right. So it's like, it's something we don't necessarily think about in that sort of historical context, but uh, unfortunately it's true. Like that, you know, sometimes some of the most important work can't get funded through traditional, you know, institutions and there has to be some other way of doing it. And sometimes it's somebody shelling out their own cash. <laughs> so the word renegade now in my, <laughs> yeah. in my entrepreneurial world, that word is generally a compliment. Wow, that guy is a renegade, and we think that's good. Now, in science, the word renegade is not generally considered to be a positive word. Like, it's almost like, well, that guy's gone rogue. But I have noticed something. In fact, I probably have only consciously picked up on it in the last couple months, is that I've actually seen a lot of science renegades do crazy things in order to get their work funded. Mm. Okay, so Barbara McClintock stopped publishing her work because nobody would listen to her, but she had some kind of an advisor or professor, somebody above her was like, this is good work, keep doing it, just let me know what you're doing, and you don't have to make everybody else happy. Okay, that happened. Lynn Margulis got almost no funding from the standard sources and she's like using speaking fees and all kinds of crazy things to fund her work. Azra Raza collects 60,000 tissue samples of leukemia patients and stores them in freezers at her own expense until I don't know when, but sometime in the fairly recent past, other people started going, hey, you know, that was probably a really good idea. <laughs> okay. And then I can think of other people that I don't know that I want to name where they have paid a, a professional price for holding a position that was not popular in the sciences. And to me, that is a skin in the game person who totally believes in what they're doing. My brother-in-law runs a relief agency and they do projects for very poor children in very poor countries, India, Mozambique. And one of their criteria for taking on a project, they do not like throw a dartboard at a map and go, let's go help the poor kids over there. They don't do anything like that. Mm -hmm. They find people on the ground who already spent their own money, got something going. And they're like, that's good. We're gonna help them. They give them money, they give them support, they give them administration, but they leave the person in charge. Hmm. But they choose skin in the game people who got something going with their own energy and then they fund that. And to me, that's entrepreneurial and that's a way of identifying. So like Bob Gatenby would be top of the list of somebody you'd get behind and fund and you'd leave them in charge of the project. Like, mm -hmm. so in your professional experience, you're a professor and you have to do the funding games. To what degree do you think it's necessary for people to totally defy the norms in order to actually accomplish something? Like, how bad is it? Or like, what, yeah. what do you think 
about that? What do you see? Wow, there's a lot there. I mean, maybe I'll just start with like that. I think, you know, if one is passionate about something, then, you know, doing it because you think that's the right thing to do, you know, that's where a lot of innovation comes from a lot of, you know, not just in science, but in general, right. It's like people who are passionate. And I think that some of academia is almost kind of become careerist where it's like you, you know, go into this as a career and you make the decisions that are good for a career in academia. And, you know, a lot of, I've gotten a lot of advice from, you know, people through the years about how to, you know, operate in academia in a way that is like, you know, how to make it a good career. And, you know, I always felt really weird when I was getting that kind of advice and it, and it didn't really all kind of click for me until fairly recently when I realized like, you know, there are different ways that people are academic. Some people really look at it as a career and make decisions in a, you know, kind of a, I don't want to seem derogatory, but like in a way of like, how do I maximize my status and, you know, progress in this as a career? And I think for other people, you know, they're in it because they are trying to figure things out and they can't imagine not spending their lives trying to figure out the questions that they're interested in or that they think are fundamentally really important. And when it comes to, you know, how do we fund research? Unfortunately, a lot of the systems that are set up for funding are, you know, in this sort of careerist track where it's like, you know, people are evaluating others based on how well they have checked the boxes in a careerist kind of way. So I think there's definitely a gap there. And, you know, I think that can partially be filled by foundation funding, you know, partially be filled by people like Bob just being like, I'm just going to spend this money. Um partially filled by um, universities that say, you know, they're going to give, you know, research money to their faculty who they, you know, want to, those faculty to have some freedom to do the work that they think is important. But it's also, it's really hard because, you know, if the skin in the game model is based on, you know, people having invested their own money, then it has this possibility of, you know, increasing the inequalities even more where some people have access to capital and others don't. So, you know, it has to be flexible enough where skin in the game doesn't necessarily have to mean money having been spent. (laughs) What if we were to frame this in terms of cooperation? Am I going to cooperate with the political system that I work in, whether it's NIH, NSF, university, blah, 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 right, all of the career things, or am I going to cooperate with the completely unpredictable black box of whatever the next undiscovered science is, which I don't know where it's Mm -hmm. going to go, but it's like, How often do you feel like you kind of have to choose? Like, I remember lots of homework assignments I had in high school and college where I go, I could get a good grade or I could learn something, but I can't do both. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I've always chosen the learning something. In fact, you know, I've took classes at Reed where I didn't do well at all, you know, on paper, but I learned a lot and 
like to me, those were some of the most valuable classes I took. So I think, you know, if you are one of those people who chooses learning something over the, you know, meeting other people's expectations and standards, it can be really, really hard and really, really risky. And I mean, sometimes I think it was just as likely I could have, you know, ended up homeless as a professor because it's such a risky strategy. You don't know, like, is it going to work or are you, you know, going to end up not having a career because you haven't been careerist enough about, you know, the decisions that you made. So. Well, Brene Brown has a saying, I think this is her, you know, a lot of people say, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? And she says, no, the real question is, what would be worth doing even if it failed? Yeah, well, and I like to think, you know, all of the things that you could do that have a high likelihood of failing, but if you do them all, then some of them are likely to turn out. So it's like in that way of approaching things, you can't afford to not take the risks because the potential benefit of, you know, any one of them coming out as something that has a long-term prospect is so huge. So I think, you know, you can diversify your, you know, renegade academic risk portfolio by not doing one crazy thing, but like 10 crazy things. Well, in my own life, like that's the only thing you can do. You roll the dice 10 times and probably two times will come up good. In fact, I think the way the world has changed with the internet being the way it is, it's actually, you kind of got to roll the dice 20 times, mm -hmm. not 10 to get. Yeah. That's my experience. Do you think that the traditional academic, we're looking for 4.0 students, we're looking for A's. Do you think that weeds out people who are willing to fail? Yeah. I mean, I consistently, you know, whenever I'm admitting students or looking for postdocs, you know, or even staff to hire, like I'm looking for people who show that spark and, you know, and it doesn't matter if their grades aren't perfect, you know, if they were you know, volunteering in three different places and seem to like really care about what they're doing, then, you know, it's like, I don't care if they have a couple of B's and C's, like that's not the important thing. The important thing is if they have that fire lit underneath them and they have a sharp mind, you know, that's really what matters to me. Well, I was a C student in engineering, if it makes you feel awesome. Like <laughs> uh, it the questions I got wrong on exams were always the ones I remembered the best. Um, <laughs> well, this has been a great conversation. There's a fascinating exploration in your book here, The Cheating Cell. And I also would like encourage people to go take a look at the Zombified podcast. And what's like a couple of episodes that people like, some of your favorites uh, that are the most edgy Mm. Well, if you like microbial manipulation, and I know I do, I definitely check out the microbial zombies episode with Joe Alcock. That one is great. If you're into the apocalypse, then I did an episode with Mike Gervin fairly recently, where we sort of talk about how um, in human history, if you look at the demographic patterns um, that were, you know, and the, the sort of population structure over time, it's quite likely that our human ancestors were facing 
major apocalypses in every generation where a, a good proportion of people died. So that's adapted for the apocalypse. So those are two great episodes. If you're feeling, you know, either cynical or not about your relationships, then Love Zombies is also a great episode. Okay. Well, you know, this has been great and it's very wonderful to get to know you. And thanks for being my guest today. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. 